How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer. Scripture says that when we sin, we're no longer walking by the Spirit. We're walking according to the sin nature. And to recover, we need to confess sin, which simply means to admit or acknowledge our sins to God in silent prayer. And when we do so, he promises to forgive us of those sins and to go further and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we always begin with a few moments of silent prayer so that we can make sure that we are in right relationship with God and prepared for the study of his word. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that we can come before your throne of grace and to recognize that you are the author of Scripture and that we are to submit ourselves to the Scripture, to what the Scriptures teaches, what you have revealed, and that that it is your word that transforms us away from the thinking of the world and into the thinking of divine viewpoint. Father, we pray that as we study your word today that we might be challenged, but also that we might gain great comfort and hope from the scripture, knowing that you are the one who is in control, and no matter how chaotic or how negative or how distorted the world around us becomes, nevertheless, you are still in control, and we can relax and trust in you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we're continuing our study in Second Thessalonians chapter 2. The uh, screen there says 2, 3 through 7. I don't think we'll get down as far as verse 7. We might not even make it down into verse uh, 4 or 5, but we're going to begin to look at what Paul says in this section where he's talking about his ministry and the motives for his ministry. And because he's being challenged by opponents in Thessalonica that he is he's there for all the wrong reasons, just trying to... Uh, to, to get money from people. He's just trying to gain power. He's just trying to deceive them. All of these various accusations. And so Paul is defending his ministry and vindicating uh, his motivation for ministry. And this is something that, that we all should pay attention to because we've all been given some kind of ministry. And we live in a world that is increasingly skeptical and increasingly hostile uh, to Christianity. Now, last time we looked at verses 1 and 2, where Paul says, For you yourselves know, brethren, appealing to their own experience with Paul, so causing them to reflect back on how he was when he was with them. He said, You know that our coming to you was not in vain. It was not just something that was empty. It was not meaningless. It, it had fruit. It changed their lives. It changed their thinking, and it was significant. And it also generated a reaction from the Jews in Thessaloniki. And as we studied in First Thessalonians, I mean, excuse me, in, in Acts uh, chapter uh, 18, or Acts chapter 17, where Paul came to Thessalonica, that he was in the synagogue for three weeks and generated a tremendous uh, hostility toward the preaching of the gospel, even though quite a few of the Jews and quite a number of the Gentile proselytes converted and trusted in Christ as Savior. Many of them did not. And it came after his trip to Philippi, and he says, But even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. So he's here. We had the map. He's here in Thessaloniki going along the Ignatian Way, the Via Ignati, which traveled, uh, was one of the major Roman highways going east and west through uh, Macedonia. And they had first arrived by boat at Neapolis, which is the port just uh, not very far, maybe 10 miles from uh, Philippi. 
and then they traveled from there after he was thrown in jail. You remember that incident? And then uh, they're now in Thessalonica. Now, what he points out to them in verse 2, which we focused on the last time, was his boldness, his courage in the gospel. I think this is important to to sort of review and highlight a little bit how, how the Bible teaches that that there is a distinct courage that we have in the Christian life that comes from God's Word. It goes above and beyond just uh, physical uh, or battle courage. It goes above and beyond just normal courage that any any person can experience. It's a it's a, a courage that comes from the uh, convictions of the truth of the Scripture. And so he says they're bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in in much much conflict. And so we looked at that last time that we need to be bold. Now bold doesn't mean obnoxious. Because I've known a lot of believers and have been aware of at least one situation that occurred not not that long ago where an individual was just a little aggressive and obnoxious in presenting the gospel to someone who uh, who was negative, and and we are exhorted again and again in Scripture to do it, uh, to present the gospel with gentleness, with kindness, and uh, making it very clear so that there's no cause for reaction. We the last thing in the world we want is somebody reacting to our attitude rather than uh, rather than the gospel. And so we saw this this word last week, peri. Ziadzimai, which means to speak with confidence. And we get confidence because we know the material well. And once again, giving the gospel to people is not doing a drive-by. There's a lot of people who do drive-by evangelism. And, and that just means that you know one or two gospel verses and you just tell those to somebody as if you expect that one promise, if they hear John 3.16, that that is going to be enough, and they're just instantly going to recognize that you have the truth and respond in belief of the gospel. Now, if they've heard the gospel nine or ten times, that might be all that's left over that's necessary. But a lot of people will go through a process. They'll hear the gospel sometimes five, six, seven times, sometimes 20 or 25 times, and we never know where we are on that spectrum. We may be the first person that ever explains the gospel to them, and they're they're so shocked, they're maybe a little bit put off, and they they may react and think that, well, you think you have the only way to heaven. How arrogant. But we shouldn't react to that. We should do what we can to help them understand what that is saying, then maybe somebody else comes along later on and adds to that, and it may they may hear the gospel three or four times. So we have to understand where we are and how to talk to unbelievers. And the courage here isn't talking about being obnoxious or being uh, assertive in a uh, a certain way, but is having the courage to speak, to talk to present the gospel, a confidence that what we are saying is true, and that comes from how well we know and understand the gospel. Now, the Old Testament uses a lot of different uh, <coughs> verses we can go to to talk about courage that that we get from our focus upon the Lord. Uh, one verse, Psalm twenty-seven, fourteen: wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. So here, courage and strength is connected to uh, to waiting upon the Lord. Another uh, verse is uh, Psalm thirty-one twenty-four: Be of cur- good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart. So you're in the midst of circumstances that are overwhelming and and perhaps scary. I was um, talking with someone recently who had befriended a, another woman, and uh, she has been witnessing to this other woman who's a Muslim. Turns out that this Muslim woman is the daughter of, the, of one of the assistant imams in a mosque here in Houston. And so she was invited to go to the mosque and, 
And uh, this girl's daddy invited uh, this Christian woman to come in and meet the head imam, who, as she put it, spoke at her for a while and gave told her how how I used to be like you. I was Roman Catholic and I was a Christian. You know, my sister was a nun. Now my sister, my mother, they're all they're all uh, Muslim. And this this uh, woman was saying just how how scared she was being in you know in this very odd and unusual uh, environment that's very hostile to to Christianity. But God's the one who strengthens us and gives us courage in those situations. Psalm twenty seven one says, "The Lord is my light and my salvation," and that light always emphasizes revelation and understanding of truth. Salvation indicates that he's the source of our deliverance and ultimate salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? If we are occupied with the Lord, then we are not going to be afraid. And then another another verse, Psalm 34, 4, I sought the Lord and he heard me and delivered me from all my fear. So God is the one who gives us confidence strengthens us and removes our fears now there's a couple of verses that really reflect a range of verses uh, Deuteronomy 31 6 and Joshua 1 7 there's a lot of other verses that connect these two and use this phrase be strong and of good courage and this is what uh, Moses says to the Israelites but right before he uh, uh, goes to be with the Lord and says, be strong and of good courage. Do not fear nor be afraid of them for the Lord, your God. He is the one who goes with you and he will not leave you nor forsake you. And he's saying this as they're preparing, of course, to cross the Jordan and to go into the promised land and fight the Canaanites. To Joshua, God says, only be strong and very courageous. Same terminology. Now, these two words are interesting. The top word is amitz. And the bottom word is chazak, amitz and chazak. Now, if you notice, they're synonyms. They're very closely related. If you look at the words that are used to translate amitz, means to be stout, to be strong, to be alert, to be bold, to be solid, to be hard. And the words that are used for chazak are to be strong, to strengthen, to prevail, to harden, be courageous, be sore. That is in Old English to be uh, severe, and those terms are are very closely related. So when we read "be strong and of good courage," it's emphasizing the fact that they are to be uh, to be very very uh, bold and have their source of uh, of strength in the Lord. Now, when we get as we get into this section in First Thessalonians. Paul is really dealing a lot with with his motive in ministry in a hostile environment. And uh, I'm pretty much a positive person, although some people may not think so with some of the things I bring out. But some of the things I bring out about what's going on in our culture, I bring out not because I enjoy it, uh, but because this is reality and we need to be aware of that. Uh, I don't like to think of where things seem to be going in this country but we seem to be headed downhill very quickly, and the speed with which we are headed towards a chaotic collapse seems to be increasing with with each year that goes by. And if we continue on the current trajectory, uh, in another 10, 15, 20, 30 years, we may see the loss of many of our freedoms. We may see a government collapse. We may see a financial collapse. Although there are many times in history when these things appear on the horizon and then due to the grace of God, they don't happen. And so I'm often, uh, often also put a caveat here that, that things can change. I have read negative and dire predictions of how, uh, we are going to enter into a worldwide famine. I heard that when I was in high school at a, at a youth group and how the world just can't keep up with enough food production to feed everybody, and the population in the world at that time was about two and a half billion or three billion, and now it's seven to eight billion. 
And it was thought that by 1974, the world would be in a huge famine. And that did not happen. And so there are, there are changes. There have been predictions due to the size of the federal deficit of economic collapse, at least as far back as the, as the mid seventies. And yet that ha- hasn't happened. God is in control of history. So, uh, in never, all kinds of things can happen that can shift the apparent historical trajectory, uh, very, very quickly. But we have to recognize that, that we are surrounded more than ever before, uh, by forces that wish to, wish to destroy us. We have enemies within this country that are hostile to the Constitution of the United States and have been slowly eroding it and changing it for the past hundred years. There's a political philosophy known as progressivism, which is built on liberal ideals and it is not unique to one political party. You have uh, progressives in the Republican Party as well as progressives in the Democrat Party. And it impacts their view of values, their view of the Constitution, their view of absolutes, and their view of economics. And progressive economics think that we can just operate on a deficit and continue to spend and spend and spend. And this has led to an unprecedented debt in this country, which is around 17 or 18 trillion dollars right now, and it's doubled uh, in the uh, tenure of our current president, so that it, during the time that he's been in office since since January of 2009, we've seen the de- deficit double, uh, and, and this is horrendous, and it's destroyed the purchasing power of the dollar, but not as much as we think, because everybody else in the world is operating on the same mentality. Nobody has a currency that's based on anything that's objective or absolute. And so if one begins to seriously tumble, they can all seriously tumble, and this would bring uh, just a, a, a collapse of the monetary systems and economic catastrophe beyond anything that we could possibly imagine. I think that's going to happen one day, but I think it's going to happen after the rapture, and that's going to be part of the chaos through which the Antichrist will come to power. I don't think that will happen before, although there will continue to be recessions and depressions in the cycle of economics. We also face numerous forces related to the assault on genuine liberty and freedom. Very few people understand that. We can think of some of the assaults that are taking place right now on college campuses that are are extremely frightening. Uh, There is an increasing opposition in this country to biblical Christianity because biblical Christianity is the only worldview, the only, if you will, philosophical System, because of the theology that is at the heart of, of biblical Christianity that can stand against socialism, Marxism, and sexual libertinism, which is becoming more and more the characteristic of, of Western civilization. Along with that goes the increasing abuse of women. It is ironic that as we hear Feminists talk about women's rights and the need to protect women and that that feminist philosophy has become increasingly uh, dominant since the late 60s. What has come alongside of that has been an increase in the abuse, the sexual abuse of women, uh, the abuse of women. And if you go back through my study in Judges, I take the time to show how this goes hand in hand with paganism. Because in pagan thought, especially in, in evolutionary thought, where human beings are just the product of chance and the sexual distinctions between men and women are just the product of chance, then there is nothing inherent within that philosophy to give value and significance to each individual. It's just like within Islam, because you have this solitary, unitarian idea of, of a god in Allah, there's no, there's no room for distinctions or value given to the different parts of the whole. And that impacts authority. All you have in Islam is the tyranny of a god who dictates to everybody. You don't have value put on the parts or on the holes because the ultimate reality is just this, this, uh, solitary monotheism. 
with, within the worldview that's dominating today, you have the uh, increasing emphasis on progressive social uh, justice, uh, which is really behind these current student demonstrations and riots that are taking place at the University of Missouri and at Yale, and who knows by the time uh, this lesson is heard what other schools are going to join suit. But according to a New York Post article that was published uh, just this last week on November the 14th, the, all of this uh, activism, all of this, these demonstrations and all of this chaos on the campus is actually the result of an army of uh, more than 10,000 leftist organizers that have been backed by an organization that has been reduced to an acronym of OFA. OFA now stands for Organizing for Action, but it originally meant Obama for America. And according to this particular article, this is the ultimate legacy of this president who is the uh, who is basically a community organizer. And so he has organized these uh, leftist uh, social action Marxists to go out and instigate various uh, rallies and flash mobs against anything that is opposed to progressivism. So they are using all the social media. They're using Facebook and they're using Twitter and they're using um whatever else is out there, in order to be able to instantly uh, react to some situation and create a demonstration. And so anything that is um, deemed to be uh, related to biased law enforcement or they can go against climate change deniers. They're organized to react to Wall Street predators and gun extremists, and that just means somebody who believes in the Second Amendment, as well as uh, opponents of gay marriage or LGBT rights, abortion, and amnesty for illegal aliens. And so with this organization now, and according to this article, they are training as many as, as 2 million extremists who will be involved in this kind of activism. And this is going to just produce increased chaos uh, in, in various cities, and it's going to cause increased chaos at the university level. But the only thing that can bring order out of this chaos is truth, is biblical truth. When Jesus said in a much-abused phrase that you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free, the truth that he's talking about is the truth of the Hebrew Old Testament and the Christian New Testament. It's that Judeo-Christian worldview and the specifics of Scripture that give us the ability to have true, genuine uh, freedom. And without uh, a biblical foundation, we can't stand against the assaults of secularism. We can't stand to stand against the assaults of Islam because our leaders are afraid to even identify that enemy for what it is. They just had the Democrat debates the other night, and they spent 10 or 15 minutes trying to justify why they can't use the word Muslim. Because if they use the word Muslim in anything that they say, then it may offend them. And this is the great sin of modern society is that, that we can't say anything to offend anybody. And that is a, a, a denial of any kind of truth uh, whatsoever. So only biblical Christianity can stand against the secular atheocracy. That's a word I've just coined. We have everybody accusing us of wanting a theocracy, but what they want to oppose is a rule of atheism, an atheocracy. And they, they want to impose that on us and to take all reference to religion out of society. But it's only biblical Christianity that gives order and is a foundation for uh, for genuine freedom. So as the, the, the world begins to deteriorate and culture tends to fragment and, and come apart, uh, we as Christians have to understand how to, how to navigate these extremely stormy waters and still have the courage to present the gospel because that's the only hope. And we have to do it in such a way it's going to be offensive. Uh, the Apostle Paul did it correctly, but there were always one group that accepted and a larger group that, that rejected. And we have to be willing to clearly, and he talks about in this 
in this section how he does it uh, uh, gently, kindly, graciously to people, but they're going to react uh, because they hate the concept and they hate the truth. So he's defending, uh, defending himself as he's having to deal with this in the midst of this, this great conflict. And as Christians, we need to expect conflict. Maybe in our lifetime, some of us may be put in jail because of we're, we're taking a stand for Christian truth. Maybe some of us are going to be put in prison. Maybe some of us are going to be killed because we take a stand for Christian truth. We've lived in a historical bubble for the last 400 years. And all around the world, about the only people who have had a measure of true freedom for Christianity have been those who came out of the Christian-speaking community and, and Western Europe to some degree. But in many parts of the world, Africa, Asia, India, uh, other parts of the world, it is absolutely uh, impossible to get a hearing for the gospel without a, a negative reaction. I ran across this account the other day written by the 16-year-old son of one of the Christian Protestant leaders in Scotland during the turmoil of the late 1600s. Now, the Reformation is far past by this point. You've gone through the period of the Puritan uh, uh uh, the Puritan Revolution against Charles I, where they beheaded Charles I and established the Puritan government, uh, the Commonwealth under Oliver Cromwell in England. And then you have the period of the Restoration, where they brought back uh, Charles II uh, as the King of England, and he reimposed uh, Roman Catholicism on the country. And so those who had uh, had... Protestant pastorates, the Puritan pastors, were often imprisoned, and this involved England as well as Scotland. And so this son tells the story, and this is something we may all experience. He says, on the 7th of November of 1685, my father with, uh, with another three desired to go and end a controversy in one of their Christian societies, upon which he left me to the kind care of Providence and went on his intended journey. But early on the Sabbath morning, he and the other three were seized by 40 of the enemy. The night before, I had gone to the Earl of Loudon's house, and in my sleep I dreamed of all the passages of trouble my father was in. I awoke with much sorrow of spirit and immediately rose and essayed prayer. But alas, alas, I was dead, lifeless, and overwhelmed with such a flood of sorrow that I could do nothing all that day but sigh to the breaking of my heart. At night, two young ladies came and sat down by me, and seeing me in such sorrow, asked me if I had gotten any food. It was told them that I would eat none all that day, upon which... They opened up their their purses wherein they had some meat and both very kindly urged me to eat. But I would eat none, at which the young ladies burst into tears, and one of them says, This morning forty of the enemy came upon your father near to Fenwick Kirk. They have killed the other three, and your father has received seven wounds and is prisoner. At the hearing of which sad news I was struck to the heart. I arose immediately and went out to the fields, but kind providence ordered the matter so that, though very dark, I met an eminent Christian, William Woodburn, my father's friend, who counseled me to acquiesce in and submit to the sovereign will of God, who is a father to the fatherless. Upon this blessed advice and seasonable counsel, the weight of my burden was taken off, my sorrow alleviated, and all fretting at the dispensation prevented. I spent this night looking to the Lord that my father might be strengthened to be faithful unto death. And so does the story doesn't go on to tell what eventually happened to, to his father. As long as we live in the devil's world, we are going to face opposition. We've lived uh, in this uh, in the United States with freedom, but this is changing. And we need to come to understand how we can have the, the spiritual courage to face what is coming. 
And that means that we have to train. And I am getting more and more serious about this. Christians need to be in high gear for training because we don't know how much longer this is going to be. And it takes time to grow to spiritual maturity. It takes time to memorize your Bible. It takes time to be prepared to grow. It doesn't happen overnight. And we need to quit thinking that we can just kind of coast along and that Sunday morning's enough doctrine, that I can come to church maybe once or twice a week and I'm going to be okay. We have to ramp it up so that we are spending time every single day reading the Bible for ourselves, studying the Word, making it a part of our thinking, listening to good Bible teaching so that we become more and more focused on the Lord as our source of strength and our source of happiness. As we go through life, we're going to face more and more opposition. And one of the passages that has always been a source of uh, comfort for me as a pastor when I face difficulty is in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, where Paul is, again, defending his apostleship to another group. In this case, it's the Corinthians. And he's defending himself against false teachers that have come in and also made false accusations against him. And so that's the group to whom he is speaking. He says, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more in labors, more abundant in stripes. That means in whippings, in flagellation, above measure, in prisons, more frequently in deaths often. That means he came close to being killed many times. He says from the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. That would be 39 stripes. The reason is, is that the Mishnah prohibits the giving of more than 40 stripes. And so to make sure they don't count or they haven't miscounted and they give too many, they would always give just 39. So five times he is whipped with the lash. And then he goes on to say, three times I was beaten with rods. One of those was in Philippi. Three times, once I was stoned, Three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I have been in the deep. In journeys often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren. I don't think he's left out any environment. He's been in danger everywhere. In weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often. In hunger and thirst, in fastings often. In, that doesn't mean he was fasting for any kind of spiritual reason. It just meant he didn't have any food and he was starving. Uh, in cold and nakedness, besides the other things, what comes upon me daily, all of that besides the normal uh, adversities and difficulties that everybody puts up with in life every day. And he then he refers to his deep concern for the church. So that's what the Apostle Paul has gone through. He is not a stranger to hostility, opposition, pain, suffering, torture, imprisonment, and all of the things that went along with it, and yet he remained steadfast to the truth of the gospel. So here in 1 Thessalonians, he begins to explain and to talk about his motivation. Now first, what he does is he talks about what it isn't, before he talks about uh, what it is, what it consisted of. And so this is going to cover the next uh, several verses, down through verse uh, verse 7. He talks about the positive, uh, negatively what, he, what his motivation wasn't, and then what it was. And he begins by saying, For our exhortation did not come from error or uncleanness, nor was it in deceit. So we want to look at this because he mentions three things here as he begins to talk about what was not involved in his ministry. He denies three motives here, and then in the next verse, in verse 4, he will deny one motive, and then in verse 5, he denies two motives, and then in verse 6, he denies one motive again. So that's for a total of seven different motives that he denies in these uh, four verses. And to list them all, he denies that he's motivated by error, 
or uncleanness or deceit in verse 3. He says he's not doing this to be a men-pleaser in verse 4. Neither does he use flattering words, or is it a disguise for covetousness in verse 5, or is he seeking glory uh, for men in verse in verse 6. He is writing, though, to vindicate his ministry against these charges that are have been uh, brought against him. Now, who were his opponents? We ought to ask that question before we go forward. His opponents were more than likely the Jews who were hostile to the gospel message. We know from Philippi, we know from Thessalonica that he initially went to the synagogue and that there were some that responded to the gospel, but the vast majority rejected him. And this led to uh, quite a confrontation in Thessalonica so that for the sake of civil uh, calm in Thessalonica, he left after his confrontation uh, confrontation with the Jews. So many of these Jews had um, had reacted, and for for many different reasons, they would be fearful. If you've given your side, your life to a belief system for many years, and somebody comes in and says you're completely wrong, then then that produces anxiety and fear, and fear is the heart of every sin. And often, when we are afraid, we lash out. They would also be concerned at losing members of their community, losing members of their congregation. They would be concerned about a competitive gospel that still held to the truth of the Hebrew Scriptures but was now adding something to it. They would also be fearful of losing family members to this new gospel that Jesus was the Messiah. And so for all those reasons, they reacted in in much anger. So they accused Paul of being just another self-seeking fraud. This was not uncommon in the Greek world at that time. You had these traveling teachers and traveling philosophers. Some of them were called sophists, and they were uh, experts in the use of rhetoric. And rhetoric at that time was just the use of language. They could talk a good talk. They were great motivational speakers. They had wonderful smiles and wonderful personalities. And people would flock to hear them because they made them feel so good. But they were, they, they, they were all fluff and no substance. They had nothing that was true. They just made people feel good. And we see a lot of that that goes on today. It happens in churches. It happens outside of churches. People become attracted to people, uh, speakers who claim to have the answers for their life, and it doesn't involve uh, the Word of God. Because the Word of God demands that you submit to the authority of God, and our sin nature doesn't want to do that. And so people seek some sort of shortcut to happiness in life apart from uh, the Word of God. So when you start exposing these frauds, and it's going to create a lot of reaction. It's like every time that I start talking about the fact that that uh, human psychology may make life work for you, but that doesn't mean it's right. That doesn't mean it's biblical. That doesn't mean it improves your spiritual life. In fact, it may destroy your spiritual life. And every time I start saying that, I always get letters and reaction from people who say, well, don't you know this and don't you know that as if I fell off the turnip truck a couple of weeks ago and I'm just spouting something that that is totally new. But this has been been the truth, the belief, the foundation of Christianity since the Old Testament. It's the sufficiency of God, the sufficiency of Scripture, and that we don't need to look elsewhere for answers to the problems that we are facing in life. So that's one thing. The other thing that happens is that people accuse us of a lot of false things. And the sad thing is that sometimes they're not too off, far off the beam. Sometimes they're accusing Christians of false motives, and they are, and they do operate on false motives. There are Christians, uh, pastors out there, and churches, and evangelists, and televangelists that are uh, guilty of deceit. They're guilty of fraud. They're guilty of doing it all for the money. They're guilty of just being men pleasers. They're guilty of doing everything out of their uh, approbation lust and out of their power lust. And so it's easy to see, well, that that can be true. I can think of a number of examples of pastors I've heard that just, just fit that bill. 
The other sad thing is on the other extreme, you have a lot of legalistic Christians, and they come along and they hear about some couple that moves down the street, and they're they've got they're they're homosexual and they're married, and they react in hostility, they react in anger and condemnation, and they talk about the fact that anybody who is who is involved in a in a sodomite relationship is just automatically going to go to hell, which isn't true. That's not what the Bible says. And they 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 create a very hostile, judgmental environment for people who are sinners. And this is just arrogance, and it's not biblical. It does not reflect the grace of God. The grace of God is not permissive. But the grace of God is not hostile. God during this age is drawing people to himself. This is the way Jesus ministered. He is not minimizing or limiting or changing the morality of the Mosaic law as he did uh, in, the, uh, in the situation with the uh, woman taken in adultery. But he, is, his, he does not turn a blind eye to sin, as he told her, go and sin no more. But what he's, what he's saying is not, he's not making a universal statement, go and don't ever sin anymore. The sin that he has in context, he's saying, stop committing adultery. Stop your adulterous ways and move forward uh, as, as in your spiritual life. So Paul here is going to uh, defend himself and in the process he starts with these negatives which are a way of of distancing himself from the habits and the characteristics the modus operandi of the sophists who would go throughout the roman empire uh they 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 had these big entourages that followed them there was a lot of, of pomp and circumstance with them and they would gain a lot of publicity and draw these large crowds. But it was all about gaining personal fame and glory and money. And so Paul addresses this. He says, first of all, that our exhortation did not come from error or uncleanness. And the word here for exhortation is the word paraklesis, which is sometimes translated encouragement as one might uh, encourage somebody, somebody who's facing fear or anxiety, and you help them, uh, remind them of some promises that encourages them. Or exhortation. Exhortation is the idea of presenting people with a challenge that this is what you need to do with the word. This is how you need to apply the word. And so sometimes it may even mean a confrontation. And in Acts and in some of Paul's uh, epistles, he uses the word exhortation as a general broad term to describe his teaching ministry, his proclamation of the gospel, evangelism on the one hand, and his teaching of the word of God on the other hand. So this is just a summary uh, word for how he taught to challenge people that you need to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, uh, the Son of God, that he died on the cross, and that by believing in him, you have eternal life. He would challenge them. He would present, as we saw in our study of Acts 17, he would open up the scriptures, he would dialogue with the Jews in the synagogue, and he would go through the Old Testament prophecies to show how Jesus fulfilled those Old Testament prophecies. So that's how he's describing it with this one word, exhortation. Our exhortation did not come from Three things he mentioned in this verse, error, uncleanness, and deceit. So let's take them one at a time. The first word is error, plane. Now, it can be translated deceit. The problem is the last word in the group, uh, which is translated deceit, it, deceit, is dolo, which does mean deceit. So if you're going to, going to translate plane as deceit, then it would be redundant. He would be saying, we didn't come from deceit, uncleanness, nor was it in deceit. So plane also, and in most cases in the New Testament, if not all, has the passive meaning of error. Uh, Bob Thomas, who uh, spoke here at the Chafer Conference some years ago, wrote a commentary on First Thessalonians in the Expositor's Bible Commentary and says that this is the meaning in every case in the New Testament. It does not mean uh, deceit. It means error, and it is uh, the fact that they are promoting error. 
And this is a major problem in the uh, in in the New Testament period, as the uh, apostles went around and taught from congregation to congregation, they would often be followed by these false teachers. Sometimes they were Judaizers. Now, a Judaizer was someone who was a Jew who refused to accept the gospel of the grace of God, that Jesus was the Messiah, and that you could go to heaven just by uh, trusting in Jesus alone for salvation. And they would come along and try to add the Mosaic law to either the gospel or to the spiritual life. This was what Paul is addressing in the epistle to the Galatians. The first two chapters of Galatians are about those who are trying to add something to the gospel for salvation, for justification. And he reaches the uh, climax of his of his argument by saying, for we are not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Christ. And then in Galatians 3 through 6, he's talking about the fact that that we are to live by the Holy Spirit, not by adding works of the law. You're not saved by following the works of the law. You're not saved by uh, imposing circumcision on the males. You are you grow spiritually by walking by the Holy Spirit. So there were all kinds of uh, teachers of error that would come through the early churches, as well as numerous philosophers that traveled. They were itinerant speakers throughout the Roman Empire who would also teach error. So there's constant warnings in the Gospels about these people. I want you to turn, before we get there, just turn back three or four books to Ephesians, Galatians, Ephesians, and then Philippians. And I want you to go to to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. This was a long section. The use of this word comes down here in this last phrase, uh, in verse 14, and we'll look at this in just a minute, but we really need to understand the, the, the context of verse 14. So I want you to go back to verse 7. <clears throat> Paul is talking about spiritual gifts. And wait a minute, let's just go back to verse 11. We don't have, need to go back to verse 7. It says, He himself, referring to the Lord Jesus Christ, He himself, at the time of his ascension, that's the context in the previous verses, gave some, that is, after the ascension, remember the ascension is about ten days before uh, before the day of Pentecost. The day of Pentecost, God the Holy Spirit descends in, in, in the appearance of a tongue, I mean, in, in the appearance of a dove, and there are tongues of flame, flames of fire over, hovering over the heads of the, the, the uh, uh, 11, 11 apostles, and he says, um, uh, at, at that time, Paul says he gave these gifts. He himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. So he lists these foundational gifts. Later on in Ephesians 2.20, he says that apostles and prophets are the foundation of the church. Why? Because they gave new revelation related to the mystery of the church age. But the, these are the four communication gifts designed for a purpose. And so he get, gave these four gifts. The first two, apostles and prophets, are no longer functional and haven't been functional since the end of the first century. And he says that these were given for the purpose of equipping the saints, that's every believer, for the work of ministry. So every believer is to be involved in some kind of ministry, and it may be and should primarily be in the local church because spiritual gifts were given to minister to those in the body of Christ. I've heard some people say, well, I have the gift of encouragement. I listen to a tape recorder, and I can encourage people at work. No, the Bible says that you need to be involved with the body of believers because you're to use your spiritual gift to the benefit of other believers. So sitting at home by yourself, unless you absolutely have to. Now, I understand there's some people who live in places like Maine or New Hampshire or maybe small town in Washington State where you've got to drive 300 miles before you have somebody who's teaching anything close to biblical accuracy. Uh, That wasn't always the case, but sometimes that is the case now. But we should be involved, if at all possible, in local congregation that uh, to, for, to minister to the body of Christ on the basis of the Word of God. 
And so we receive equipping from a pastor, and it's for the work of ministry, for the edifying, and that's a word that means to be built up or to strengthen, for the edifying of the body of Christ, until we all come to the unity of the faith. This is not ecumenicalism. This is a unity of the faith, that is the New Testament faith, what biblical Christianity is all about, and that excludes the ecumenicalists. And I wish I had brought this up uh, up to me, but I ran across a survey earlier today, and I'll see if I can remember this. And it says that, that there was a survey of 10,000 clergy, 10,000 clergy who were uh, to see if they believed it, that the Bible was the inerrant, infallible Word of God that was true in all areas of history and science and faith and practice. 97% of Episcopalians said no. About, I forget what the next division was, I think it was 92% of Methodists said no. And then it dropped down a little bit, and it was about 80-something percent of Presbyterians said no. And then it dropped on down, and it was about 62% of American Baptists. I think that's referring to the old Northern Baptist denomination. 62% of American Baptists said no. And that's what I've said for years. It shocks people because you'll hear pastors in the pulpit say, we believe the Bible is the Word of God. But... These phrases have been diluted over the years. So 150, 200 years ago, if you said, I believe the Bible is the Word of God, then today to mean the same thing, you have to say, I believe the Bible is the divinely inspired, infallible Word of God, breathed out by God without error in the original manuscripts. And that inspiration is both verbal, which means it affects every single, uh, every word. It is the words that are inspired and that it is plenary, plenarily inspired, which means every word is equally inspired and equally authoritative. And that is what inerrancy means. But there has become another error that has developed uh, in the last 30 or 40 years that, that minimizes inerrancy. And they do this now by talking about the, that the form that much of the Bible is written in is poetry. And if, if it's poetry, then it's not going to be, it's not uh, interpreted as literal as history. And so they'll say, well, the first three chapters of Genesis are all poetry. So this is not to be understood historically. So they don't believe in a young earth. They don't believe in a literal six consecutive 24-hour day creation. They don't believe in a literal Adam and Eve. Now, some people who hold this position will believe in a literal Adam and Eve, but they still believe in in an old earth, which means that somehow God uses... Uh, theistic or progressive uh, evolution to bring about his his um, his views, and you may see this magazine. We still get Grace and Focus, and the the current issue in Grace and Focus has an article by Bob Wilkins. So did the one that was like May June last year. Those two have the, these articles in here showing how this has impacted New Testament scholars. And the title for the article is, Can We Trust New Testament Scholars? And he should have answered it, not any more than we can trust Old Testament scholars. I, I used to uh, have a, a church history professor at Dallas Seminary that said, well, the old saying that Satan, when Satan was cast out of heaven, he fell in the choir loft. But then he bounced into the Old Testament department. Because historically, the, the greatest threat to seminaries holding to inerrancy has been, has come out of the Old Testament departments, like in Princeton and, uh, Yale and, uh, other, other places, even Dallas Seminary. There's not a full-time faculty member at Dallas Seminary anymore in the Old Testament department that believes in a literal six, 24-hour consecutive day creation. But they still believe in inerrancy. Now, how do they get around it? Well, it's divinely inspired poetry. They change the form, the literary form, the literary genre. And so uh, this is a breakdown. And what, what, what 
Paul is saying here in Ephesians 4 is that we gain to a unity of the faith, of the truth, which means that we have to separate from all of these other people that do not believe in the literal historical uh, interpretation of Scripture and that the Word of God is inspired and inerrant in everything. And back in the late 70s, I'm getting way off topic, but this is important and it's current, Way back in the 70s, as these battles over inerrancy heated up among the Southern Baptists who recovered, among uh, uh, Missouri Synod Lutherans, and among some, some evangelicals, it culminated in a large group of evangelical scholars, including people like Norm Geisler, Charles Ryrie, Harold Honer, uh, many of the professors that I had at Dallas Seminary in the late 70s were part of this. They met in Chicago numerous times, and they crafted a lengthy, lengthy doctrinal statement explaining inerrancy, and it's called the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy, and it's excellent. But they recognize that even though you believe in inerrancy, you can somebody can give it away by their hermeneutic. And so they came back two years later, and they produced a massive volume of almost a 1,000 pages called Biblical Inerrancy and Hermeneutics, and, uh, and, and they focused on these issues. But they couldn't come to a consensus on hermeneutics. And that's what's happening today is that a lot of these people are saying that, that, there are, that they're using their hermeneutics to get around what is taught through biblical inerrancy. And in fact, one of these younger guys, who's probably not that young anymore, but it's probably a baby boomer, they're the ones that are the source of a lot of trouble, um, has written a book on, on this. And he has said several times that people like Norm Geisler and Earl Rodmacher, Bob Thomas, who we've had, I mentioned him earlier, Bob Thomas, and others are hyper conservative inerrantists. In other words, he's saying they're just off the charts. Well, those are the men who met in Chicago back in the late late 70s and defined inerrancy, and which is in most Bible church doctrinal statements today. So, so today we're slipping more and more into, into theological error, and this is the warning that Paul gives in Ephesians uh, 4.14, that we should no longer be children. You can only mature through the teaching of the Word, tossed to and fro, and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. Now, that's New New King James. Literally what it says in the Greek is a craftiness of erroneous methodology. And that's exactly what I just illustrated is going on in these seminary faculty uh, th- uh, meetings and the, among se- seminary faculties, academics, they have adopted an erroneous method. And so that is leading, uh, leading Christians astray, and it, it is a form uh, of trickery. So... Colossians 2.8, we have another warning. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit. Now, there's no use of the word planao here, but it is a warning of the same kind of thing. Uh, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. It's a warning against false teachers who are coming in. First uh, John 2.26, John says, These things I have written to you concerning those who try to deceive you. That's that same word, planao. Uh, the verb there. Uh, but evil men, in Second Timothy 3.13, but evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. So they're being deceived by their teachers and instructors, and then they in turn are deceiving others. And I think that's really true of Islam. People who are Muslims, many of them truly believe that, that perhaps that they do believe in a religion of peace. And nobody's ever really challenged them that Islam is not a religion of peace. If it were, why are you all trying to kill each other all the time? Uh, the Sunnis and the Shia are always trying to kill each other, but it's supposed to be a religion of peace. Why are you trying to blow up everybody and destroy everybody? They are Many Muslims are deceived, are, are, are being deceived, and then they in turn deceive others because of that. 
Second Peter 2.18 talks about these false teachers. For when they speak great swelling words of emptiness, they allure through the lusts of the flesh, through lewdness, the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error. There's our word error, but this brings us to the next uh, area that Paul mentions in First Thessalonians 2.3, which is uncleanness, and that has to do with uh, a motive of sexual immorality in terms of the teaching. We'll get a good illustration of that when we get back for our next class uh, next time. Father, thank you for this time to study your word and to be challenged that as believers we must have a motivation that is uh, clear and righteous and holy in conformity to your character and that our communication is gracious and gentle and kind before we don't seek to win arguments. We seek to bring people to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.